This is a Federal News Network podcast. Defense Department components often give grants or contracts to colleges and universities, and companies for that matter, to do research. That means they develop Controlled Unclassified Information, or CUI. Now the Defense Office of Inspector General has found research contractors don't do a great job of protecting that information from cyber attacks. Joining me with details, the project manager for Audit Cyberspace Operations in the DOD's Office of Inspector General, Gregory Crawford. Mr. Crawford, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. Talk about this issue in the large sense for us. What types of companies or universities or who are the entities that are getting these contracts? For this project, our sample size included a mix of academic institutions, not-for-profit research institutions, and other companies that conduct research and develop technologies for the DOD. And our focus was on the security controls in place to protect DOD-controlled unclassified information, or CUI, that is stored on a contractor-owned networks and systems. And simply put, CUI is unclassified information that requires additional safeguarding and dissemination controls to protect the information. For this review, we assessed the cybersecurity controls related to authenticating users, limiting access to only authorized and approved individuals, encrypting data, protecting information on removable media devices such as thumb drives, scanning and mitigating identify vulnerabilities on their network and the overall security posture of their network. Sure, and there are specific rules and regulations that these entities are required to follow, right, for CUI in order to legitimately get a contract. So, yes, companies must follow the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement Interim Rule, which was amended in September 2020 to implement in part a standardized methodology to assess contractor implementation of cybersecurity requirements. And all the contracts that we assessed for this audit, the interim rule did apply to them. And the interim rule went into effect on November 30, 2020, and it was designed to enhance the protection of unclassified information in the hands of DOD contractors. And what did you find? How far or how closely did these entities that you examine follow that interim rule? Overall, we found that the contractors did not consistently implement cybersecurity controls required by the NIST 800 and some of the biggest problem areas that we identified pertain to basic cyber hygiene practices such as protecting information on removable media, as making sure that media is encrypted to apply a layer of protection in case it is ever lost or stolen, disabling inactive user accounts, and enforcing two-factor authentication for users to access information on their networks and systems. And we also found that contractors did not address identified network vulnerabilities in a timely manner. So basically, these are not something that's really rocket science. These are basic cyber hygiene measures. Absolutely, that's correct. We're speaking with Gregory Crawford. He's project manager for Audit Cyberspace Operations at the Defense Department's Office of Inspector General. One of your findings was that the contracting officers are supposed to assure this, that these controls are in place, that the contractors are complying with that interim rule. How can the contracting officers themselves find this out? That's a great question. So contracting officers and the contracting officers' representatives, they have a responsibility for ensuring that contractors comply with cybersecurity requirements. 
and the contracting officers should select their contracting officer representatives that are qualified and technically proficient to determine compliance with the NIST security requirements. And the interim rule allows contracting officers to conduct on-site or virtual verification of contractors' implementation of the NIST 800-171 security requirements to provide the department with a greater confidence level that contractors are properly securing DOD information. So it's not enough for the contractors to be able to say, yes, we're doing all of this, but you recommending that the COR, at least, if not the contracting officer, him or herself, go there and check it out. Yes, some sort of verification by DOD personnel or approved third-party organizations by the DOD definitely should be done to make sure that the contractors are properly securing DOD information. Do you think one of the issues here is that on campuses, and you mentioned a lot of these are academic institutions, there's kind of an openness or presumption of trust that's probably not appropriate for those that are handling information important to the Defense Department? We do utilize research institutions and our academic institutions. Those are partners with the DOD, but we definitely have to make sure that this information is protected and it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. All right, so just briefly review your main recommendations and did the different components agree with you? Overall, we issued 10 recommendations for this report and the DOD agreed with eight of the 10 recommendations and they outlined their plans to address the weaknesses identified in the report. And we are currently working with the department to come to a resolution on the remaining two recommendations. And specifically, we recommended that the principal director for defense pricing and contracting direct contracting officers to use their authority to assess contractor compliance with NIST 800-171 security requirements. In addition, we recommended that service and component leaders direct its contracting officers to verify that the contractors corrected the cybersecurity weaknesses we identified in the report. Right, because these recommendations went to, in one case, the Commanding General of the Army Contracting Command and Commander of Naval Sea Systems Command, Commander of the Air Force Research Laboratory. So these are directed at high-level people within these organizations, which means you must consider these pretty important. Absolutely, and these findings are very critical and relevant in these current times as contractors that handle sensitive DOD information have been under increasing attacks from malicious individuals and malicious actors. So we definitely want to make sure that the proper controls are in place to protect that information. And I guess if all of these institutions get on with this and get on their game, they'll be ready for when CMMC finally comes around. Yes, that is the plan. All right. Gregory Crawford is the project manager for audit cyberspace operations at the Defense Department's OIG. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses 
and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.